Welcome back to Catalyzing Coherence. We are here today broadcasting out of our Starfish Mission studio. We have set up everything for video and audio broadcast for the first time, so we're going to have a, a really awesome uh, live video podcast here today. We are here with John Connors, the uh, community director here at no, Starfish Mission. Community Thank development. You. All right. Community. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Community development it's here okay. at Starfish Mission. Uh, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it. The only reason why I'm getting it's it's actually the funniest thing about the title thing. Um, I negotiated coming in here ahead of community development role, and every time, and I bought business cards, mm -hmm. and now I have to cross it out. Not have to in a bad way, in a beautiful way, because in a <laughs> decentralized starfish organization, yeah. there is no head of community development. Yeah. It was a facade, not a directorship, it's not a directorship <laughs> either. So yeah, it's just funny yeah. um, learning that we're as we're growing together. One of the many things that we have to figure out as we create the whole new language around decentralization. Definitely. Yeah, like the COO model, the CEO model. I've had a few friends in here for happy hours hanging out, crossing out their C's. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, you know, just, just trying to play around with what, what does the new decentralized organization look like? Yeah. Don't ask for... Don't ask for permission. Beg for forgiveness. <laughs> you know, show up. If but there's, there's nobody to beg to. If there's right, exactly. So if there's value to add, if there's this is this is what things need. If there's value to add. People just sometimes will step up and add that value, and you have done that here in enormous ways. And um, yeah, thank you, Brian. Glad to sort of be recording with you live. Here we are at Starfish Mission. I mean, we were just chatting, and Johnny and I, we all have amazing conversations on the reg and we started johnny started getting into the hegelian dialectic Oof. in a way to that allows us to explain the current situation that we find ourselves in and the juices were flowing we figured we might as well record something and see if we can share it with folks because i think it's an important idea that very much explains where we are and what's happening in a way that, as Matthew and I like to say, is not just a metaphor. This is just like, this is what it is. So now what? So let's first explain what it is, and then let's maybe we can talk about what next. But you recently wrote an, uh, an article for Medium, yeah. right? Can you, can you give us like the basic 101 of what you're talking about there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it was called Occupy Starfish, and it's a combination of, um, you know, kind of a, a cultural exploration of the decentralized movement of Occupy Wall Street combined with this decentralized co-working space of Starfish Mission. And the tying thread together is this decentralized, you know, Starfish organization that is Bitcoin, this cryptocurrency that was created by this unknown entity as a solution to the Wall Street collapse of 2008. Mm -hmm. So both the both Bitcoin and Occupy Wall Street had the same genesis block. Mm -hmm. And that genesis mm -hmm. block was the destruction of the centralized financial status quo, mm -hmm. the biblical Leviathan mm -hmm. that we currently are dealing with every day in our daily lives. Yeah. And the fallout from that centralized narrative, we really haven't unpacked as a decentralized like movement. Yeah. Like what actually happened in 08 yeah. that led us to create a whole new currency? Mm -hmm. and, and can we look at it? from that framing going backwards. Uh, a lot of that seems to be, you know, we, we didn't have at that time when we were feeling the main, most acute side effects of that financial collapse. We were feeling the side effects of, you know, decisions made by centralized actors within these systems to use, uh, within the financial system, to use algorithms that 
were very bad at analyzing the risk of, of all these mortgages that they were just packaging up so that somebody could get some, uh, some you know, better CDO and get better returns. And there were very few people within the system who were making these decisions. And yet the impact on the community was immense. And then we realized that pain when everything came crashing down, but it was very opaque in terms of what happened. Definitely. And, and no one at that time was talking, oh, this is like over-centralization, really. It was too big to fail, maybe a similar language. Which is exactly. exactly. Too big to fail is the, exactly. is the uh, you know, the information warfare mechanism they use to fill us with, uh, they had to do it. We had no other choice. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have the, the framing to say, hey, wait a minute. Like, what the hell just happened? As you said, there's organizations like the SEC right now looking to regulate this decentralized solution to our problem that occurred. And no one's saying, hey, wait a minute, what happened last time in 08 with the SEC? Mm-hmm. Did they actually stop securities fraud from occurring? And if they didn't then, what makes them the exemplars to regulate this industry moving forward? Or can we as a movement have our eye on that? Like, what actually went down? Yeah, and that is the danger with all of this is that we're developing you know, this nascent phase where we have all of this potential in the systems that we're building, in the decentralized systems, in the blockchain networks that we're building, with the potential to reevaluate how we really think about value and representing value. And we seem to be running the risk of just you know, reiterating the same patterns, falling back into the same old patterns, doing the same old stuff with this new technology. No question. So in 1929, you know, the centralized body, the SEC, was established after the collapse of, of, of the uh, financial ecosystem in that time frame. Financial, centralized finance collapses. It, it is inherently unstable. And decentralized finance would be the solution to our current problem. But instead, we turn to the SEC, a centralized body, and say, can you make centralized rules that will predict the next failure? Unfortunately, there are people who work at the SEC make like 60 grand a year. It's not bad. You know what I mean? Great, great people. It's better than I make because uh, I do passion projects. <laughs> but at the end of the day, they're regulating people who make two hundred fifty to $500,000 a year that have far higher resources, higher IQs, no offense, and therefore are way steps ahead of the curve. Yeah. So we're saying, please centralize. And, and then another piece of the centralized um, equation is that these guys are waiting to finish up their $60,000 a year bureaucrat job to get a job at this $200,000, $500,000 a year private or institution. And we say thank you for, for regulating us. And thank you for making rules where only people who have $250,000 of investable capital can invest in the future. It's like, I don't know about that. I'd prefer, even though there will be some learning and some mistakes made along the way, I'd prefer to have the people's money. I'd prefer to not ask, beg from a beggar's bowl of the centralized status quo on how to change this world. Mm -hmm. That seems to me like madness. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a little bit of insanity. Uh, It seems quite insane, especially from the perspective that... uh Regulatory capture, right? There's this idea of, oh, we need to have this regulatory body that understands all the rules and that has all the experience and that can therefore dictate from on high what the, what the shape of the system should be. And yet, when they do that, even if they were to be effective, which most, I mean, you know, there might be some argument for some level of efficacy, but there's also a massive amount of risk that comes from centralizing that power, right? Um, as soon as you centralize that power, you paint a bullseye on their backs for anybody with enough money and enough uh, desire to swing some opinions or you know, apply that. pressure, right? Mm-hmm. No question. So th- what we have, is the issue with our c- entire social system right now is that even if we're getting our news from what used to be called decentralized sources like Facebook or Google or Twitter, let's be real, they're ultra-centralized behemoths. 
we're either getting our news from New York Times, from Time Magazine, uh, these these um, media companies that are owned by 90% of the media companies are owned by five companies. Yep. That is centralization and it's ugliest. And then now we're getting our news through the people, but through algorithms filtered by five large organizations like Amazon, like Google, like Facebook. So we're ultra filtered our perspectives Mm -hmm. so the conversation that we started about the hegelian dialectic is there's very few people sitting down telling us what's going on in the world from the true framing of centralization versus decentralization and centralized structures inherently have enormous faults and failures and the biblical story of the tower of babel is one example of when stuff when things get too big to fail they will come crashing down to earth yeah it's just a it's a historical pattern that will replicate itself yeah it's archetypal, and we talk about archetypes on this show. They're important frameworks for us to understand the world, you know? And so the patterns, the deeper we can go into sort of the treasure trove of existing archetypes of patterns that we have. Jordan Peterson talks about theories as tools, right? So these are ways that we can actually understand the world, like the Tower of Babel collapsing. What does that se- what does that seem like? Like if we were to really break too that big to fail, too big to function. Nineteen twenty nine finances, yeah, exactly. Two thousand uh, nineteen ninety nine fine, or maybe it was the savings and loan crisis. I forget exactly when that was. Right. There are these consistent patterns happening all the time, and then our centralized news sources never come out and say we need a new currency. Right. What happened was Satoshi Nakamoto, that entity, that unknown entity, just created emergently yep. this new solution. Well, I mean, that, that speaks a lot about the fact that we tend to focus on symptoms as opposed to root causes, right? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the, the root cause of over-centralization is going to manifest itself in numerous symptoms, yes. all of which can be presented independently and all of which could be, in theory, propagandized in, in a way, right? No question. Uh, and, and so we get caught up at this very surface level of analysis um, and in a, especially in a media landscape before the internet or before you know, YouTube was a primary mode of disseminating information. Um, and even now it's over-centralized because it's in, in Google's hands. Oh, no question. Um, that one. But, but before that, we had this mode of not only were we only addressing the symptoms, but even the symptoms were only being discussed and, and discussed and pushed out to the public through a handful of media outlets. No, okay. So, so, so what are the roots here, right? So we, we can talk about the symptoms, but I think folks have a general sense of the symptoms, right? Things are not working that well. Yeah. What are the root causes? What do we know is actually happening? And so we're going to get to the Hegelian dialectic, but I would just take it even one step further in my own thinking, which is that the Hegelian dialectic has a framework, a root in Taoism. This is a dance. This is a primal dance oh, that happens. That. Oh, wow. The yin and the yang... There's things, there's tension. Bucky Fuller would talk about tension as a dimaxian evolution. This Mm. is a necessary process to creating more, to creating better. This is truly to our benefit. That's the thing that people need to start realizing is that this chaotic world, these challenges we face are actually our greatest opportunities. Oh, I love that. And, And we can rise to the occasion like never before. So let's get into this Hegelian dialectic. Where are we? What's going on? First, can I send a little context? Sure. So the Hegelian dialectic, when I first learned about it, was through the lens of Marxism. Right. And Marx came out and, you know, a lot of... So let's just preface that. All of Marx's framework comes from Hegel. Yeah. He he was a student of Hegel. Big, deeply. And it comes down from this idea that there's a huge polarity. There's There's the thesis statement, which Marx's thesis was that industrial was industrial capitalism. 
and then his his antithesis to industrial capitalism was his form of communism, socialism, whatever you want to call it. I look at it as a somewhat centralized um, equation. He says seize the means of production. So in my perspective, looking at Marx, he's saying centralized oligarchical capitalism, which is either America or China or what's going on globally today, needs to be countered with centralized oligarchical communism or in some way. Maybe he didn't specifically say that, but his students have implemented that globally. So the synthesis, which is supposed to happen at the arrival of the two, yeah. of these two Dymaxian, you know... The tensions, the thesis and the antithesis. Create this synthesis. And the synthesis that was created was a global oligarchical world. So two centralized thesis and antithesis have not led to a better world, you know, world order for the rest of us. Yeah. So the best, the, mo- the maximum... Um, Capability for the Hegelian dialectic in the world today, in my opinion, is to go instead of two centralized organizations, two centralized philosophies, to go from globalized, centralized Leviathan that is the political, social, economic thing that is just getting <laughs> bab, you know, Tower of Babel style, yeah. to the self sovereign, decentralized humankind. Right. What this cell is in the superconscious human organism. Right. And so that's so, where nature comes into play, right? So we can start to think about how do natural systems find harmony in their environment. And so as we design these new systems, we can look to the decentralization of nature, which ten- tends to be um, non-local at times in terms of like thinking about a mycelial forest underneath the woods, the trees. They, they actually distribute resources to each other on a as-needed basis. No question. Well, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely more complex than that, but it's, it's, um, I want to go back to the thread of, uh, I want to go back to the thread. What do you mean it's more complex than that? The, it's not necessarily on an as-needed basis in terms of the mycelial networks. It's, it's interesting because there's, there's a lot of information signaling. It's actually much more like a negotiation process. It's a market process in yeah. many ways between the tree root systems, the yeah. network systems underneath yeah. the forest, and the mycelial systems that are able to um, bring up more... Harvest nutrients and share. Har- harvest, uh-huh. yeah, harvest smaller nutrients that the root systems <laughs> yeah. can't necessarily get. So in exchange that for sugars from the trees, and the trees can use photosynthesis to actually yeah, yeah. Know, basically drive that process. It's a closed loop. And, and they, have, they have economic, effectively economic negotiations sure. right, between all those networks. And so, so there are, like, so what you're saying, I think, I think what you're saying is like, there are points where there are needs for particular types of resources and that kicks off a negotiation process. Yeah. And then, then it can flow through that it network. It flows. Flow is a very important concept mm. people need to familiarize themselves with. Nature okay. flows. Water, it flows. Everything flows. Information the flows. The economy... It flows, you know where it flows? It flows at the tip where those super rich bankers have these super fast computers that are just taking all the money from... Vampire. (laughs) (laughs) Or as Rolling Stone called, the giant squid of Goldman Sachs. Where where does it not flow? Through the people. Yeah. The two billion starving human beings on this planet. Through the actual exchange of needs. What do people need? They need love. They need food. They need shelter. They need community. So many people on the streets right outside of us that need shelter. And the richest city in the country. No question on that one. Well, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's a whole other can of oh, worms. Yeah. Though, I, I, here. I, we open, we open cans of worms here. I think, I, think <laughs> I mean, maybe a unifying thread that could tie those, those two ideas together is this notion that there's, there's a large, maybe even all three threads going back to Marx, 
there's a massive disconnect oftentimes between ideological rhetoric and the uh, the actual operation of the systems on the ground. Well said. And so the systems on the ground, the actual the reality of, of physical being actually operates at the level of the individual, right? Mm. It's individual homeless people on the street. Yes. And it's individual people stepping over them. Yes. Again Myself and again included. and again and again. Yes, sir. And some of us, you know, are some of us feel more shame about it than others, and some of us have more of an emotional Matthew, response. Matthew, have others. I told you I've adopted a homeless person named Thomas? Thomas. I haven't told you about no, this. No, 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 Nick, you haven't. Nick's met Thomas. Hmm. So I have, there's a guy I live right now, at least down the street at Soma. Hmm. There's a homeless guy named Thomas that he's always begging for money outside the market. Sure. Um, and I've sort of developed somewhat of a relationship with him over times. So I'm always passing. I bought him food a bunch of times. Sure. Last time we hung out, I bought him. <laughs> we went into the market. We got, he was, I was like, what do you want? He's like, I want pizza. He orders four massive slices of deep dish pizza and a whole sort of thing of uh, orange juice. Hmm. And I'm like, we're gonna like we're gonna really talk about some stuff. I'm gonna get you all these things. And so we had, you know, had a conversation, like really trying to understand the root causes of like why are you out on the streets every night begging for food? Um, the guy is apparently hearing voices. He's yeah, like schizophrenic going, has no has no way to to no alleviation of that particular psych psychological issue with our current with our current healthcare. No one's helping him yeah. other than so he's gone to a priest and he's uh, trying to work himself into a, a job there. Yeah. He and I are meeting in two weeks to see if he's, he's he told me he's going to go every day for 49 days. Um, but yeah, so... So I, to tie that back just for one moment to decentralization and its please. finest, on my left arm is a Christian anarchist tattoo and that would be the individual at its finest serving the network giving to the poor, yeah. giving to the sick is the best way to create a cogent, decentralized society. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little out there, but... Yeah, no, it definitely is. I mean, and I, I would like to maybe just go back to where we were before we started talking about Thomas um, and and like the the kind of... So the idea of the fact that there's this dissociation between um, the the language and the rhetoric that we talk about in terms of decentralization or um, Marxism or any of these ideological... Or Republican versus Democrat. Yeah. Duverger's law. And and any of these things, right? There's an inherent separation between the word structure and the actual behaviors that we actually have to act out to embody the reality of our words, of, of what we claim to represent. And I think it's interesting to, to map that onto these financial systems, especially, or, or the decentralization versus centralized yeah, political systems. centralization mm-hmm. tension. Mm. And this question that I think you're right in the middle of here, and we're broadcasting from also the epicenter of, is, is this question of how do we act out the decentralized behaviors at the organizational level, at the personal level, yeah. um, with our company that we're trying to build? And, and how do we understand the flows of value from a particular decent, particularly decentralized perspective? How do we... How do we navigate yeah. and operate and, and choose goals? How do we do that? Yeah. What does this synthesis take of, into consideration? Yeah. Well, first I'm going to just pull back a little bit because we're nailing on even what got us so excited to sit down and pull up the mics and talk right now was this political alignment around a new Hegelian dialectic between the centralized and mm-hmm. centralization yeah. and decentralization. Mm-hmm. And to go back to your point about narratives that aren't really aligned with that, Reagan-era 
Republicans made the claim of decentral of decentralization of the empowered individual. Well, they decentralized marketplace. Right? They decentralized marketplaces, yeah. but they centralized resources to the Pentagon. Yeah, enormously, is, you know, like anti-market. Dude, no yeah. question whatsoever. So they had a rhetoric of decentralization, but an action of pure and utter centralization. Same thing with George W. Bush. So we have a Republican Democrat story. A, a political science narrative of decentralization as an underlying thread, mm-hmm. but the actions don't actually line up with it. The true decentralized political movement in the United States would need to dismantle centralized systems that are not in use of, are not in benefit of all of humankind, mm-hmm. and the Pentagon would have to be one of those things that are hyper defunded mm-hmm. because of the amount of resources that centralized behemoth mm-hmm. is taking up. I was talking to a buddy who uh, has some military background mm-hmm. who apparently. The military, you know what? We won't share that part. <laughs> For, but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, you're gonna have some assassins on the roof here. Seriously, I don't even. Wanna, to I, them I, as I don't, well. And honestly, like you, you don't, you don't have to want to believe everything you hear. But generally speaking, this point that we are spending money on the wrong things is so ludicrous. It's so outrageous. The things that we spend money on and don't spend money on. Yeah. So an oligarchical capitalist model allows Raytheon to make money bombing Syria. And Halliburton to make money repaving the roads in Syria. Yet a decentralized radical capitalist might look at that and say, that's a bullshit marketplace. I would love to see Raytheon's yeah, stock fair, price. It's a failed marketplace. Yeah, right? that's because, it. Is. Because the market participant, it, the people who are being bombed are market participants in theory. By no they, choice of their own. Yet they have no voice in no the question. system there. Right? No question. So that's a failure of that market because it's centralized actors from some other place in the globe. And this kind of ties into this idea of like, so defunding the Pentagon, right? What are the implications of that? It kind of ties into this idea that there's a, you have to solve this globally. And that's one of the wonderful parts about the crypto revolution or this decentralized revolution is it, it's natively global. It's natively transnational so that you actually can build up this system for people to represent their will, their wishes, their value um, outside the domain of the centralized state. And have a chance of solving it in many places at once so that, for example, you don't necessarily defund the Pentagon and then get invaded by another another centralized country or something. This is where I align with the more libertarian decentralized crew of being prepared in case such an issue were to come down. Yeah. But, you know, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, it doesn't (laughs) have to be messy. Yeah. Yeah. It does not have to be messy. We're all doing this together. Like, we want the benefit of everyone, of everything on this planet. So it does not have to be messy. So my argument as a decentralist, if you will, if that's now a new thing, (laughs) um, the decentralist would be prepared to grow their own food, take care of their own water, take care of their own energy at the cellular familial level, as well as defend themselves and their family and their family's resources. That's just my perspective on it. It doesn't have to be everybody. But also doing that through the means of community as well. Definitively. If each node in the community had that, Israel 1948, for instance, was a great example of this. They had a decentralized strategy for protecting their land in a Mm -hmm. time when not very many people were friendly around them Mm -hmm. and how they did it was every single person knew how to grow their own food in a harsh climate Mm -hmm. and every single man at that time um, was trained with firearms and they were able to stabilize their nation state in a very destabilized time so i don't agree with guns we don't have to i actually do not think this has to include like violence at all but protection is different than but sure. sure. And like, you know what? My buddy knows jujitsu or like yeah. I've got a guy who's a black belt in karate, whatever. I mean, that's a symptom, right? We were talking about symptoms. The, the violence is a symptom of a system that's broken. 
what are people violent about? They're violent about their needs not being met in some capacity. Yeah. No well, question. Generally, conflict over uh, conflict over a resource that is in theory zero sum in that moment right. or that place in time. It's an important point. And so and so there's competition and there's conflict. It's like, oh, you want that glass of water? I also want that glass of water. <laughs> well, and well, no amount of negotiation is able to solve it. No amount of community norms is able to solve it. And if there's a breakdown at all those levels, then it's just you and me and and force. So, so exactly. I mean, I guess the. A case study example of, of a successful nonviolent approach would be Gandhi. But if we take Gandhi to the current centralized status quo, there are f- actors that acted very similar to Gandhi that were treated much different. And that were people in Guantanamo Bay who were not given the right to a fair trial, who were in prison for over 10 years, who said, I'm going to stop eating like Gandhi said, I'm going to stop eating. And the British Army allowed Gandhi to stop eating because he has human rights. The U.S. officials in these black operations sites fed these people up the rectum it's not a joke i'm not making this up it's completely open so this centralized status quo has implemented a particular strategy towards nonviolent actors i'd prefer to at least have peace through strength though i can sit at the table with another brother and sister and 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 with who choose not to take a peace through strength stance i just study what's going on too much to to not be prepared that's where the beauty of community comes into play yeah this is a symphony, as I like to say, and we all play different instruments. Yeah, yeah so I mean, that, that, that does tie into this idea of coherence, right? In, in the sense that we have different perspectives on an issue like this right. um, that largely probably come from our different paths through life, our different experiences, the communities that we've seen or, or been in. Like, you know, you both, obviously, you're sitting here, you're different people, mm-hmm. you're dressed differently, you have different rhetoric, you and have different ways friends. of thinking. And we're still friends. What do you know? Yeah. Yeah. What do you know? We share perspectives on, like, you know, the use of force, but... Archangel Michael's my homie, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But there are are ways that we can still get along. There are ways that we can still communicate effectively. I think that's one of the things we've had this, we've had this high level breakdown of our rhetoric. We've had this high level focus on how we're different. And the fact that like, you know, if we disagree on something like a gun or its use, that we can't even be in the same community anymore. Yeah. No um, at any scale. And that's an open question. And it's an interesting question to talk about, I think. No question on that one. Yeah, to switch away from the gun conversation, because that could be its own haywire, I'll go back to even the Genesis moment for me at Occupy Wall Street, if that's yeah. okay. I was a business yeah. school graduate. Back to decentralization. Yeah. Business school <laughs> graduate, watched Wall Street collapse in 2008, wrote about it in the Medium article, and was just like, huh, this thing is not functioning, and no one's really having the conversation about this thing not functioning. And now I can actually see in financial models exactly where the BS assumptions of perpetual economic growth exist. It's just a lot of companies are overvalued and untruly valued in the eyes of finite resources on planet Earth. So mm-hmm. it was kind of weirded out by it, but didn't know what to do. Needed to make money to feed my wine and women habit and just continue on my lifestyle <laughs> of not, you know, not enlightenment, you know. And all of a sudden, a bunch of these hippies in the park hanging out, and I took LSD. Mm. I took uh, LSD and uh-huh. I was dressed was that like the first time n- first time in like since I was 15 <laughs> Johnny you took a trip I took a trip I stayed to 30 <laughs> you know what I mean and I was like all of a sudden these Ewoks uh, you know I considered myself Jedi and some of the people J- Ewoki <laughs> we would love may the force be with you indeed brother and I've melted my mind of the difference of the separation between me and these individuals and I started to study about decentralized economies and the value that comes from them and the emergent properties that arise from them and started hanging out at the anarchist table in my suit 
talking to bankers (laughs) as they walk by about the value of a decentralized economy that Mm -hmm. if we could eliminate these large squid actors like Goldman Sachs that they're slaving away for anyways why wouldn't they get a good chunk of value for their work just not have to give it to the dead squid on the way to work you know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. and just for the record we're not blaming this on any particular banker in fact i know some bankers they're my friends they're my family in fact yeah, bankers are people too bankers yeah, definitely are people too <laughs> definitely people but they don't I just look to disrupt their business model it right, doesn't mean i right. hate they don't people. they don't know the free market they don't Indeed. know better yet uh, it's not quite yet because of the sec but and let's well. just let's just appreciate that <laughs> to consider that there's an inertia that they're a part of that they don't even quite realize and it's about stepping out of the stream to see what's actually happening. feed the centralized behemoth so that you can get yours. Yeah. Unfortunately, those of us who have been in the game long enough now realize that the centralized behemoth is not returning value to the majority of people, yeah. the majority of shareholders. Even. Actually, I just want to, for the record, my brother does not work at Goldman Sachs anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have family. <laughs> I do have family, but uh, yeah, yeah. they've chosen we're other paths. Have, we're all a family here. <laughs> we're all family here. Um, I think that that's also an interesting thread to take it back to um, some of the, the dialectical elements of, of Marxism as well in the sense that um there's this structural element that he was observing but i don't think he really he he kind of perhaps framed his analysis incorrectly in the sense that sees the sees the he was it sees the means of production yeah, which, is like, which is basically like argument. yeah sees the centralized node yeah, not necessarily realizing that the fact that you have a particular as, as as long as you have the capital coming into one point and then flowing out to the people who have actually created in the chain of value, the laborers who have created it, as well as the people who have done the intellectual labor and the investment in it. But if the capital is flowing back through the system only through that one point, it gives every tier above the workers the ability to profit take or to rent seek, right? Yeah, so it creates this huge asymmetry mm. in the way that the value flows back into the system. And, you know, he, he, he kind of, I think he may have missed the mark in terms of his analysis, but... He, he saw the future pretty well. Yeah. Forgive him for not understanding technological advances yeah. to include into his economic theories. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he certainly noticed the fact that there was an asymmetry here and that people were not, uh, people were not necessarily getting value that was, that was symmetric with what they've put in. Definitely. Right? The Irish who built the railroads at the time that he was yeah. writing yeah. were living in shanties yeah. and treated very, very yeah. poorly. But then the failure was also a centralized failure because even if you implemented Marxism in a centralized political system, what oh. you were doing was creating... Mao Zedong? A massacre. Sing- yeah. Well, you're trying to create a... Like a Joseph s- Stalin? Yeah. No, thank yeah. you. For yeah. the people, what? <laughs> Except for those yeah. 10 million. Right. Whoops. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like, yeah. It's yeah. like death... You know, and, death and, and mass. And why? Because they're creating one big centralized people computer. Yeah. And then yeah. fit into this mold. Yeah. Exactly. And then and then the fact is reality is complex, immensely yeah. complex. Yeah. Way too complex for a single centralized uh, people computer. Now the terrifying part is actually now China has no longer a people computer. They have you know, some of the world's best greatest mind control on the planet, <laughs> creating, creating technologically enabled centralization. And they're putting all of their effort behind systems and they're even using decentralized systems to empower their oh, centralization. No question. So are you familiar with the citizen score? No. Oh no. yeah. That that's preventing people from flying. Effectively it's, their credit score, tying the idea of a credit score to political compliance. Maybe you've seen the episode on black mirror. It's oh. pretty similar. Got it. No, I haven't seen that. But yeah. Um, well, except, yeah, that one also includes like social ranking, but this one's also like the values in society are, are effectively dictated by the Politburo. Yeah. And then 
your compliance is monitored throughout through the, the entire so the centralized system is being is being fed by decentralized inputs. so yeah let's say that you make a, a Weibo post which is kind of like their Facebook slash Twitter Get it. and you say something critical of um, the new essentially dic- dictatorship Got right it. um you could wake up the next day no longer being able to buy a bus ticket or your food and your credit cards don't uh, work. None yikes. of that works, right? Because it's all connected by technology. So no longer the gulag. It's now instead yeah. just starvation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now the reach of the centralized authority <laughs> yeah. is truly fractal in a digital Whoa. sense. Yeah. Let's make a point of this. This is actually happening. This is the world we live Deeply. in. Deeply. Yeah. And I'm not laughing in a funny way. I'm laughing in that twisted way. It's yeah. tragic. Yeah. Yes, yeah. sir. It's tragic. Yes, it and, tragic. and it's empowered by technology. It's empowered by technology that we're a part of. It's yeah. a reflection of us. But we also live in a free world where this is not the world we live in yet. Got it. And even our brothers and sisters in China, God bless them. Bless them. That their yeah. future is a little brighter than this sort of dictation of a decentralized AI system that however they're trying to use that for their governance. But here we are, like three actual activists, change makers, people doing stuff. Yeah. There's, there's people all around us, even in, this, in Starfish here, in, in San Francisco, around the world, that they're doing things too. And we know that this is not the future we want to have, right? No question. And it, it, even when I like made a, took a little jab at the banking system, I don't want to eliminate them. I want to outperform the hell out of them right. in the marketplace. Yeah, we're going to outperform them. You know what I mean? We want to automate them. Yeah, straight up. <laughs> there you go. Where's yeah. your, oh, bye. You didn't, you didn't like, CEO as well. You didn't yeah. like working that job at, at you know, your banking job? Oh, you don't have to do it. Like, no one does. Yeah. We can build something that does it in a way that's more fair, more fluid for everything to flow. To go back for a moment, I was mentioning the archetype of the CEO. Here we are in Silicon Valley, which is, you know, really capitalizes so well on ecosystems and, and you know, and, and the idea of, of networks. Mm-hmm. But yet we still have the cult of the CEO here yeah. that is like a sickness in our culture. Yeah. I love the smart contract DAO idea of mm-hmm. literally eliminating the CEO. Yep. It's like stop praying to that God yeah. and let's instead have an empowered populace, yeah. an empowered network outperform the hell yeah. out of those inefficient well, CEO model companies. So that's the interesting thing. Like I was, uh, I was at a conference about a year ago that was like re-envisioning democracy, basically, a conference down in Palo Alto. Got it. And I was having a conversation with somebody about you know, why do we still have these CEOs? Like, what, what, what are the advantages of having... Care charisma, that the much power. to raise capital from centralized players. Well, so the, you have Sandhill Road contact. There's that externalized perspective. I, I guess our conversation was shifting a little bit more towards the idea of in, inside the company itself in terms of decision-making. And there was this interesting idea of so far as we've developed technology thus far, and this is what we're trying to change in the decentralized model, and some mm. of what we're doing with Oro, which is a side project of ours... Mm. Um, Name drop. <laughs> yeah, name drop. Ooh, yeah, plug that. Plug um, that all day. But there's still this problem of how do you effectively and very quickly collapse a lot of collective intelligence into directed decision making. Mm. And so up until this point, it's been put in the hands of single individuals because there's a way of like instantly kind of having that like wave function collapse through one mind. Got it. Which is extremely inefficient it, and can be very dangerous uh, yeah, for the system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but it's also efficient in the fact that it's not analysis by paralysis. Exactly. Things get done. Yeah. You know, my mentor is a five-time CEO, African-American guy from, from Newark, New Jersey, named Ralph Garvin. A brilliant computer scientist, mm-hmm. 170 IQ. The guy's freaking brilliant. Oh, wow. But what I, what, nice. where he's, we kind of have a Jedi battle, lightsabers on the table, is <laughs> this, I spent it. It's a Jedi two, mind battle. Oh, definitely. <laughs> two years in his organization learning a ton sopping up the knowledge and I'm 
but there are instances with which centralized proclivities and centralized niceties do not lead to effective collective action. And I'd rather, I I can't wait to invite Ralph in to help program out a lot of CEO positions, Mm -hmm. especially in the enterprise space, because that's where a lot of his mind share is. But the idea is that like, if we create nights at the round table governance style, where we can call each other out on each other's shit, because sometimes we're off and our perspectives have a blind spot. If we have this pointed measure where we have to yield to it just out of social nicety, we lose business effectiveness. Mm -hmm. We lose the ability to create shareholder value. Tolstoy wrote about this as well. Ah. Some of you may know Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> oh, indeed. Well, you don't have to read War and Peace, though. I might recommend you do. It's a great book. But it is his view of history, how mm. it operates. And, and he's basically bashing the sort of um, theory of the hero in that there is no one person. It's not Napoleon that's, like, making all these things happen. Definitely. It is this decentralized mess. Under him. Of emergent synthesis. <laughs> yeah. Well, the interesting thing to tie into that is that, so is, there's this anti-hero narrative element of that narrative. That being said, there's also this, there's a lot of power to stories like the hero's journey, like Campbell's hero's mm. journey. And the way you might be able to tie them together while still being able to have your cake and eat it too, yep. and is, you- is the fact that in a network, in a graph, Every node can be looked at as the center as their as well. hero. Yeah. So without a CEO, without forming this like this permanent works, structure, you can have everyone living their hero's journey and coordinating in a way without any like one singular hero or like the big man hypothesis. Right? We are so, as gods and might as well get good at it. Let's it, we, let's start with being heroes. So I just want to go back for a minute because there are Taking CEOs in our, in our company in our office. I don't have a problem with all CEOs, nor do I think all CEO companies are a problem. <laughs> I really do support companies that are functioning under that hierarchical mechanism. I'm just challenging the rhetoric of the cult of the CEO, yeah, yeah. deeply embedded in the DNA Challenge of Silicon that Valley. Shit away, You're the gadfly. done so decentralizing Gadfly yeah. Yeah, person changing changing the models, creating the chaos. Yes, sir. And it's not it's not necessarily because we 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 hate people. Or we like have animosity yeah. towards people. No. It's because we're trying to take the structures that exist and blow them apart a little bit yeah. and yeah. say maybe we can put them back together in a better way. Yeah, this isn't anti anything. Thank you. This is pro all of us. Yeah, rock on with that. And pro the value of the network versus the rigidity and structure of the uh, formalized 20th century hierarchy. Yeah. Precisely. I, mean, I think the best way to go about well. An effective way in my mind of going about this is like if you can find value wherever it lies and you can represent that in the systems that's used to actually do the transaction of value and represent what we create together and then represent where the rewards should go when something works, um, then we can actually start having a much more granular grip on reality in a way that we don't have to focus so much on in-group, out-group or like mm-hmm. we don't have to like mm-hmm. have – you know, scapegoats for this oh, yeah. because so many scapegoats, it's like, oh, why things go wrong? We don't know why things went 9/11, wrong. 9-11, we had scapegoats. Com- the world's complex. It's yeah. a complex reality. It's like there's a million <sighs> reasons why it may have gone wrong. And so so you blame it on the scapegoat. 9-11 scapegoat was Afghanistan, though 20 of the 22 bombers were Saudi Arabian. So yeah, the scapegoat thing could get pretty nasty real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and the thing is, the scapegoat, if you, if you fall prey to the scapegoat, then the person who gets to define it is usually the person with the largest megaphone. Oh, right. yeah. oh indeed. If this isn't you or you or me or any of us, then who's going to do it? Yeah. All of us. This is our job. Our collective hero's journey. It's our collective hero's journey. Yes, sir. Fully aligned with that one. 
go back quickly to Leo Tolstoy. Yeah. He, uh, he wrote a book in 1890-ish called The Kingdom of God is Within You. Mm-hmm. And it's the, mm-hmm. it's the core doctrine for anybody who believes in Christian anarchism. So, <laughs> so he's, the, he's the first decentralized JC follower. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like an interesting Wikipedia read. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Check that book out, too. Indeed. Cool. So I think we're actually coming up on, on the time for the day. Uh, is there anything that we want to wrap up on? Any notes that we want to get out there before we wrap this first session here? Yeah, another piece that's just a quick, maybe nine-page read is um, Frederick Hayek's The Use of Knowledge in Society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talks very clearly about the benefits of decentralized economic distribution. Mm-hmm. And it's the core premise behind a lot of, I think, the economics of token distribution mm-hmm. that's going on in the space today. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So. so perhaps we could get together for another episode, uh, talk a little Hayekian and Austrian school economics. That would be, be fun. Badass. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for all that you bring to the office of Starfish Mission and just the excitement, the culture, the unique perspectives. Um, you guys are a huge asset to the organization. We love being here with you too, John. Namaste, friends. Indeed. Thank you, everybody. Blessings. Take it easy.